Hello, and welcome to Talking and Jewel, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Somerville, Mass. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. Hey, Zahava. Thank you so much to everybody who reached out with feedback on our new format. We're so glad that most people seem to really like it, and we're happy to keep bringing you more episodes. This month, we're talking about how we prioritize kids' services and programming versus our own communal needs. What's our ideal and what have we seen that did and didn't work for us? Mimi, this was a topic that you brought to us. So I would love it if you could take it away. Yeah. Thank you guys for indulging me in this topic. I I hope that it's meaningful for our listeners as well. One of the things that's happened during trademark my Jewish journey (laughs) is that I really like, I think I've figured out what I'm looking for in a community. And I, I've even, my husband and I were mapping it out. It's like a combination of like a certain politics, certain davening style and rabbinic style or lack thereof. The community, I want to feel a certain way. And then obviously proximity and convenience is, is a factor. And then I had kids. And at first with babies, fine, schlep them along, all good. But now I really need my kids to have have their needs met in a communal setting. So I, ideally, I'm looking for some sort of tat Shabbat um, and play space where they can be cared for and I can go to sh- services. Um, and because of that reprioritization... I'm actually feeling really lost because the place where I like to be in community and I like the davening um, and I like the politics actually isn't the place with the best quality kid programming and kid vibe. Um, And I'm just really, I, I guess, spiritually really struggling with this. Um, I was telling Zava and Tamar before we started, like, you know, as I reflect, I'm realizing like that my spiritual and communal needs have gone to the bottom of the priority list. And that's happening in other areas of my life where my needs are going like, okay, eventually you'll buy a pair of jeans, Mimi, don't worry about it. (laughs) So that's a, I guess shouldn't come as a surprise, but I, I don't know. I'm really struggling to figure out what to do for myself and for my kids and Turning to you guys for commiseration, advice, your own process. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah. So how about, I think you should go next because you have kids closest, closer in age to Mimi than I do. So I have kind of a different perspective, I think. Yeah, that's true. And tomorrow I'll be interested to hear your report from the future. So my kids are one and a half and four. So for context for anyone listening, um, I feel much more equipped to have this conversation than I, I recall five or six years ago having uh, an episode about Jewish parenting mm-hmm. when I did not have any kids and felt uh, ill-equipped. And I think I reflected on that more as a child than as the parent or potential parent in the equation. So it's it's interesting to think about what you see as the kid in the equation and what you see as the parent. But yeah, I think this is really challenging. I find that my shul morning experience is much more, I don't know, peripatetic than I would like it to be. My shul has like four different services going on. And rather than just like 
sit with me in one of them, there's a lot of exploring and which one is daddy in and where should we go? And, and I'm just, can, can I just dive in in one place? And so, but there's all this other cool stuff going on. So, so some of it is about not feeling settled and even the one service that I would like to be in is not the one that's most appealing to her, my older daughter, my, my four-year-old when she's with me. And then there's the question of how much do you want to outsource and how much can you outsource about kids' shul experiences? So I go to quite a large shul with a much more fully developed children's programming infrastructure than the one certainly that I grew up with. And I think that's partially the size of the shul and partially sort of generational. I think this is something that's much bigger than it was when I was young. But we're still in the age where she doesn't want to be dropped off. In the same way, she doesn't really want to be dropped off at birthday parties yet. She's nervous, right? Like, it's just an age thing. She'd rather be with me. And I guess the question is, what are we going to insist on, right? And then there's, you know, who's who's juggling our baby and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, there's the sense that as long as she's making her way through her supply of snacks, she can sit with me for like a good 20 minutes when we first get to shul and I sprint through my personal whatever I can get said in that 20 minutes and then we're on the move and it feels much more like a physical exploration of the prayer space than a spiritual one and uh, you know who do we bump into and who do we chit chat with in the hallways and my husband is much more likely to have the baby with him he is often in the stay and play room. So for children under four, there's no drop-off option. There's a be with your parent and there's like a little facilitated touch about program and some snacks and hangout. But, you know, there isn't care for children under four. And so he's more likely to be in that space and then also sort of wedge in a little bit of his own service time. And yes, for sure, our own prayer experience has been deprioritized. Um, Somebody was joking to me this week. I'm so from, I go to all the minions, like she's going to (laughs) every single uh, service in the building. And I'm like, well, I'm failing to pray in all of the services (laughs) one at a time. So yeah, I think it's a challenge. But I think even if my daughter was willing to be dropped off, there's the question of how much do I want to outsource to the like minimum wage teenagers in the room about what is the meaning of being in shul and the experience of davening. And, you know, I grew up next to my parents in shul, you know, sitting next to my parents in shul. Granted, I don't have a clear memory of being four. So the age at which I'm parenting is not the age I'm remembering. But I learned about being in shul from being with my parents in the service. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a question as to how much, you know, I outsource a lot of their Jewish education, right? My, My daughter goes to day school. And how much do I want that to be true on Shabbat as well is something that I haven't totally settled for myself yet. I appreciate that framing of, of the outsourcing versus the, you sit next to me and you're here from, you know, you're learning by watching me. But tomorrow I'm curious from the future. So I have always basically had the approach to parenting that the modeling of what I do is like, pretty much the most powerful statement that my kids will get about almost anything. And so it's important to me that my kids see me doing what I would like hope for them to do. And I am generally less concerned about what else happens in the building. So basically 
my feeling has been we go to a place where there are not really children's services of any serious ilk and I don't care. And I don't like there is, I guess now I didn't even know about this, but now there is like once a month a family service and like I literally didn't know it was happening for the first several months that it happened. And like, I think that my daughter went a couple of times without me, but like, I don't know because what happens when we get to shul and this is basically since she's been able to kind of like be independent in any way is just like, we go to shul, we go to our spot, we bring toys like until very recently, like our talus bag was like a bag with our tally tote in it and also like a bunch of toys, like magnetiles and some other like random like toy cars and whatever. And it would just be like, we get to shul, we take out our tally tote, we put them on, we take out the toys, any kids that are around play with the toys. The parents are kind of like milling around davening and chatting in the back of the room, but like, and the kids are there too. And like people file in and out as kids, you know, need to go in and out. But it was basically like, this is where we are and this is where you'll be. And if you're like, I don't do a lot of intensive parenting at Shul. I am basically like, I'm here to daven and to be in community with my friends and my community. And like, that's what you're here for too. And so, like, obviously, my seven-year-old isn't doing a lot of independent davening, but, like, when she sits next to me, like, I talk about the Parsha with her, and I, like, point things out, and, you know, we kiss the Torah when it goes by, whatever. This week, my partner did Hagba, and I did Glila, and she, like, helped me with that. So it's like, she's an active participant in that way, but, like, The truth is, most of the time, she is like kind of roaming the building with her other friends who are, she's seven. So her friend's group is like five to eight, five to nine-year-olds. They like, you know, I'm sure they get into trouble. I do not know, nor do I care. Like, the point is, we brought them to shul. They're getting a sense of like, this is what happens at shul. And they feel at home at shul. And like, that's the thing that's most important to me is like, they feel like this is a center of their community. And this is like a place that they go where they belong. (sighs) And like, that's going to develop into different things for different kids. And I also like, I just want to say, I happen to have a, like my younger kid is like the most social child who has ever lived. And so like she, often we come to shul and like she makes the rounds and she has like various adults that she's friends with and she'll go and sit with a couple that we're friends with and she'll go and sit with a different person that we're friends. And she, you know, and then she's just like chatting with them and showing them like she's really into bringing, she's really into like purses. Like she has like a million different like fuzzy purses in the shape of animals or whatever. So she's always showing off whatever purse it is that she brought to shul today. And like, it's the kind of thing where it's like, Is there Jewish content to that? No, but she's sitting in shul Mm -hmm. every day for some amount of time. She's around other Jewish people. And like, she sees that this is important to us. There is like a tat Shabbat and she's like much too old for it now, but she does sometimes go to it, I think because it's like more interesting and there's challah and grape juice at the end. Um, But again, I'm just like, that's fine. Like I I feel like I'm just like kind of setting, setting the table of like, this is what we do on Shabbat. 
you figure out what makes what works for you and you can do that. And obviously as a seven-year-old, she's much more able to do that than when she was four. But even when she was four, like my attitude was basically like, we'll follow her around to a certain extent, but we're going to steer her towards the sanctuary so that we can daven and hear what's going on in the service. And Basically, I'm not really interested in kids' services because I have never liked them. Like, I didn't like them as a child. I just feel like kids don't really like them. And I have no desire to sit in one. So I kind of feel like if I don't want to do it and I didn't want to do it when I was a kid, I can't make a good case for why my kid should do it. If there was like a drop-off option that I felt like was good, I would be fine with that. But for me, it's really about like, this is where we go on Shabbat. My Our older kid is 15 and they usually bring a book and sit in the back and mostly read the book. And sometimes like they will usually like say the Amidah and when we talk about the Parsha with them, they will listen patiently. And I'm just like, <laughs> great. You know, like that's that's fine. I feel fine that I feel like we have competently set the expectation that like every single Shabbat, we will go to shul Mm -hmm. and you don't have to be, there's, there's very little that's like expected of you there other than like you go and have whatever kind of experience you need to have. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that that's just like not possible for every kid and not at every age. But I also feel like it's kind of weird that like, it doesn't seem like a thing that people are really talking about as an option. Like, I feel like there's so much more programming expectation now. And I'm just like, I just, I always want less programming. I just don't, I just feel like, especially by the time it's Shabbat, it's like, I don't have the koach for this. Like, I just don't feel like I have it in me. Also, I will say, I'm almost always either leading davening or reading Torah. So anything that requires me to do something that is not in the sanctuary with my child is like not possible for me because I have to be there to participate actively in the service. So I am just kind of like, okay, whatever, I'm not doing that if it, if it requires that I can't be participating in davening. Anyways, I recognize that's like a very... Uh, off the derach opinion, but that's where I have landed. That's the derach I want to be on, though. I'm <laughs> I, like, yeah, I'm so envious of that. I, I, I think that's really something to aim for, and I think that this is kind of a larger parenting philosophy thing. And this may be because you know, my my first kid is just getting to the age where this is a question, and I may get more chill with time. In general, I think. I maybe am defaulting to too much active facilitation in my kid's life. That's a possibility. And so the idea of presence without active facilitation being something that we could just expect to last for more than 20 minutes feels very remote right now. But it's something that we could work towards, right? It's an expectation that I could set. Exactly. She's not inclined to go to the programming. So the question is, do I make it a big personal goal to like force her to stay in the programming or is that actually not the direction I should be heading in as a goal? And I think that's the conversation I need to be having in my family. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I I think part of what's been so hard for me is that 
I don't enjoy the programming. And so, and nor does my son. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. He likes enough of it. He loves the challah and grape juice. Um, but they have that at, the, at Kiddush anyway. So, you know, I, I'm, I feel like I'm choosing to go to the place that has somewhat robust programming, but I'm still unsatisfied and unhappy. And yeah, I wish, I wish it weren't an option. I wish it weren't on the table. So then maybe, I, I mean, obviously I can take that option off the table, um, but it is so deeply unsatisfying, Tat Shabbat. I think that there just is so much more programming than there was when we were kids. And I don't have feelings about whether that's good or bad, but I don't think it is necessary. And I think that if it doesn't work for you, like, I guess the question is like, is it important that your kids go to something that you don't like and they don't like in particular? And if so, why? If they're not really going to like sitting around in shul, but they're also not going to like the like programming that's specific for them, then my default in those situations, because I am selfish, is just be like, well, I'm going to do the thing that I like more because you're a little and like I <laughs> am have like a more developed brain and I want to do the thing that's going to be more scintillating to me. Well, and it furthers another part of your parenting philosophy of modeling. Right, exactly. But but I, I it's all wrapped up. It's like, I want them when they get older to make choices that actually are stimulating to them and make them feel good. And I feel like the best way that I can help them to do that is by showing them that as a parent, I am making choices. Like I'm not going to make choices that actively harm them, but I'm also going to make choices that continue enriching my life. And the best way to enrich my life is not just like go to programming that satisfies them. It's actually like do things that enrich my life. I don't know. I think that's kind of like a controversial point of view right now. And I recognize that it feels hard sometimes, especially when there is something on offer, you know, like we, there was a, um, like a Shabbat school thing at our shul. So it was like Hebrew school, but not whatever. I don't even know because I was like, we're not doing that because you had to like get to shul at a specific time. And I was just like, why? I don't care. I'm not going to pay money for my kid to do something on like while we're at shul when like she seems to be doing just fine, not. But then a bunch of her friends started doing that thing. So she was like, well, I do want to do it now. And I was like, so irritated to pay for it because I was like, this is dumb. They're good. They're doing like Shabbat okay art projects, which are always <laughs> like, why? This is so stupid. I was like so mad about it, but she wanted to do it. But then like she and I was like, fine, whenever we get to shul, you can go down to that thing and we'll sign you up for it or whatever. And she like just decided she didn't want to do it at a certain point. Like she got over it. And I was like, I'm not going to stand in her way. If she wants to do something, I will make a space for it, but I'm also not going to plan my whole life around something that neither of us really go for. I also will say like, it just did mean that there were several years where like I did nothing at shul for more than 20 minutes at a time at the very most because of following after a four-year-old or whatever. But like, realistically, it's not like if I were sitting 
in the sanctuary, I wouldn't be chatting with my friends at least five minutes out of every 20. So it's not like that different. But yeah, I just want to give you guys like a little chizuk. Like it will, you will be able to do more of that. And I do, I think it is really hard when there is something even if it's not good to be like, I'm not going to participate in this thing because you'll see everybody else doing it. And it's like, why am I not? But it's like, if it doesn't work for you, you don't have to do it. It's really okay. And like, I think all of these children programming things are come from a place of like, families want this stuff, which I'm like not even sure that that's true, but I know for sure that what I don't want is something crappy. So it's like, if that's, or or just something that doesn't like jive with what I want for my family. And if that's what's on offer, like I think it is not just okay, but actually like a net positive to cut yourself some slack and just not do it. So I feel like I haven't done a, good shul board member job of selling the quality of my shul's youth programming. But (laughs) for any members of the youth committee listening to this podcast, I do not mean to talk down the quality of the Shabbat programming, right? The fact is I haven't extensively sampled it because my kid doesn't want to be left, you know, left in the program. I'll say there is definitely demand for it at my shul when there was a break in programming over the summer because the usual youth leaders were off being camp counselors in overnight camps you know, there was a a significant pushback to the lack of programming. Um, People really rely on it. I'm not sure if they rely on it for transmitting the meaning of Shabbat or if they rely on it for child care that happens Mm -hmm. to transmit some of the meaning of Shabbat. And I think that But child care that allows you to then go and like do your own davening, like amen to that. Yeah, of significant value. Yeah, exactly. I I don't want to talk that down. And I think that depending on the specific youth leader that happens to be in the room, um, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. It certainly has value. I don't know that it makes sense for us at this moment. And if it doesn't make sense for us at this moment, that may not be the path that we're on. But it's interesting, Tamar, one of the content things you mentioned was like talking to your kid about what's in the Parsha. And I feel like the Parsha and the laning has been the most obvious cut in my routine because that's the part that it's for a kid who doesn't have fluent Hebrew reading skills like that is not an engaging moment Mm -hmm. I'm using that time to blitz through my quiet davening that I can get through as much as I can I haven't sat and listened to a even a substantial portion of the Torah reading in a very very long time and honestly That is obviously on me because during the lengthy period when we were home and the shul was not open for services during COVID, I did not prioritize sitting down and reading the Parsha, even on any form of my own schedule. So it's interesting that that's not something I've chosen. Now that my kid is in Jewish preschool or what they call in Canada, junior kindergarten, (laughs) it's interesting because what she comes home with is a knowledge of what's in the Parsha, right? That's actually a thing that she knows something about week to week. And I probably could and should be leveraging that in shul. And it frankly had not occurred to me because the Parsha has become such a minimal part of my Shabbat experience, which is something that I hadn't reflected on as being a loss, but it really is. Yeah, it's interesting how 
the Torah service can be a highlight. Like it, it's exciting. Let's take the Torah, everybody kiss, walk around. You know, you get to like see people a little bit during Torah service, taking it out. And then the Torah reading is like, that's when we go downstairs to where the, the where the toys are. But I think, yeah, I think maybe that will change for us when my son gets a little bit older and, or we find books that we can read to prepare him in the absence of day school. It's hard. It is hard. I would say there are, there was like a full, at least a year, probably more like two, where like, there's like a, like, you know, little, like a slide and some padding (laughs) in one area of the shul. And like my kids, both of them would just want to spend all of shul like playing on that thing. And I was like, bye. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> that sounds boring to me, but you go for it. And I think that's okay. Like at that point, it's not age appropriate for them to sit in davening. That's fine. Like it barely feels age appropriate for me every week. <laughs> I'm in my late thirties. <laughs> so I, I get it. Um, but I do think like as much as it is possible to like find whatever kind of space in your shul and just be like, you can just be here. Mm-hmm. Like it's nice for kids to just have that. And it builds a sense of like, yeah, we just, this is where we come every week. And like your experience of it will change over time. And that's fine. Mimi and, and Zahava, do either of you have like a clear sense of what you would, like what your ideal Shabbat morning programming would be for your kids? Like, is there something that you're like, I wish this existed or I wish the thing that does exist would do it this way or something like that? I think my oldest is is three and a half and is, I often call him my barnacle boy. He's, he really wants to be attached to me. Um, so w- we wouldn't do well at a drop-off sort of situation, at least at this stage. What I wish happened at, the shuls that I frequent is something more like you're describing Zahava or Tamar, where there's just a little bit more openness to in the corner of a room are a couple of four-year-olds with magnetiles and stickers and a mess of snacks. Like right now it's you, there's childcare downstairs, which he won't stay at, or at a different shul, there's a taught Shabbat, but it's for parents and kids. And in the service itself, there's just not a culture because those are options. There's not a culture of kids being in the service unless unless they're babies. So yeah, I, I wish that there was just more of a culture of like, yeah, your kids can be here. It's okay. You you can leave too. But <laughs> yeah. What about you, Zahra? Yeah. I don't have a great answer to that, I think. I think the problem is that we're expecting a lot of our teens because the functionally a lot of youth programming is facilitated by teens. And first of all, I would like the teens in my community to be having their own spiritual experience rather than facilitating the spiritual experience of my four-year-old. Like, I think that that is a sort of communal infrastructure problem. And I think that if I were the parent of those teens... Maybe this is like a really great religious experience for them. And I, I don't mean to judge that, but I think that that's a, it's its own kind of loss. But also that there is a real fine line between what a teen can impart and just sort of babysitting. 
and they're following a script that's been provided. And so I think it's less about what the script is and more about the fact that if we're going to do this, we kind of have to do it, right? If we're going to have the programming, then we need a level of professionalism in facilitating that, you know, as somebody who's like seen my synagogue budget, I'm not sure is possible. Like, I'm not sure that's a reasonable expectation. So I think that there's a personnel question that I think is bigger than the content question, and I don't know how to solve it. And so I don't, I don't have any sort of magic answer to that. I think that one arena in which this comes up for me in kind of a purer form is actually not Shabbat, but holidays, especially holidays that fall down on weekdays, fall out on weekdays. So there's a big question, I think, because holidays are like a big event that you often hype up for your kid, either in school, with children's books, and you do a lot of talking about it in advance, you want them to experience it. But the holiday is also a sort of more unique religious opportunity for you. At the same time, depending on your setup, you may have access to weekday childcare. And so the, the choice is sharpened. And so there's the question of, am I... Who's going to get anything out of this if I bring my kid to shul on Yom Kippur and therefore probably neither of us, right? Like then I should probably take advantage of my childcare option if I have one and the shul is mostly providing childcare in that setting. But on Simchat Torah, there tends to be pretty robust children's programming and then there's the question of what kind of religious experience am I trying to have on this holiday? For Tamar, that would be the Kabbalistic <laughs> field-based meditation. But for most of us, <laughs> it's an initial thing. I'm just hoping to not have any Simcha's Torah experience because by Simcha's Torah, I'm like, I can't with this anymore. <laughs> Does your child know that most people go to shul on Zimchat Torah? Is that the thing they're aware of? That is a great question. Adira has never been to shul on Zimchat Torah in her <laughs> life. Uh, we started our Zimchat Torah camping trip when she was four months old. So I guess, wow. no. <laughs> I mean, she's Just the might. idea of camping with a four-month-old is pretty wild, it was, it was. Talk about Jesus. <laughs> it was one of the dumber things I've done, but it, it worked out fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, even like Purim, right? Like Tamar, you're talking about how you are often reading Torah or leading a service. Purim is one of the rare shul occasions in which I am like right. in a leadership position, right? I am reading from the Megillah in a women's service. And on the one hand, I would love to have my kids see that. On the other hand, I need to be reading. Right. And then usually if it's not a portion that I'm reading, I'm serving as a gabai for that moment. And to have her like pulling on my sleeve is challenging. And so like just thinking about that, I feel like it, it is just sort of a pure distillation of the question because there tends to be more specific programming. There tends to be more specific stuff your kids could be getting out of it. And you tend to have the greater likelihood of an alternative to bringing them with you. I mean, that is not always true, but it may be true depending on your certain cir your circumstance because it is a weekday. Pro alternative options may be available depending on how you think about them. So I think I tend to approach the choice more specifically because the holiday is a more specific occasion than your average Shabbat. But I think I could probably be approaching my Shabbat experience with a similar level of intentionality. Your question about personnel, though, is so interesting because I often think 
you know, you can often find job listings for like leading the junior service for the high holidays or something. People make thousands of dollars for things like that. And I mean, far be it for me to say that that's not a good choice. I think that's a great, a, a great option for a lot of people. But I always look at those listings and I just think like, does that person just not get, if you are like employed to lead the child service for high holidays for a shul, effectively you do not get to do your own davening for the high holidays. And like, for me, it's like, I am I technically equipped to lead one of those things? Yes, but I never feel like I could because I don't feel comfortable not being in davening on high holidays. I'm like, I don't know how to make that work for me. And I often think about this because rabbis in a shul often have to do like weird service hopping in order to like get to the service and like give the sermon at the time when they're whatever. And I'm just like, I was definitely in a ritual committee meeting once where it was like very clear that the rabbi was not going to be able to say their own um, Musaf Amidah because they were going to have to be going between different services. And I was just like, this makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> like, I mean, I know that rabbis also work on Shabbos, which is really weird to me, but like, I, I don't know. There's something about the way that religious education ends up working that often means that the people, that that the educators don't, aren't able to have their own experience that I find kind of upsetting whenever I think about it. I recently, my brother-in-law is a day school teacher and does over any time that they will have a children's service that they'll pay well for, he will go. And I was recently talking to him about how long has it been since you sat in Rosh Hashanah services that weren't for preteens? And he, it was a decade. He has not gone to grown-up shul in a decade for Rosh Hashanah. I think that's sad. He doesn't, he doesn't feel sad about it. I think this for him feels like a great opportunity to like serve his community in a meaningful way and make great cash. I mean, truly, but. And I think if you find it fulfilling, it's like not easy to find the high holidays fulfilling. So if that is a way that you feel like it can be meaningful for you and maybe you're helping other people to find meaning in it. Like I, I am not disparaging that at all. I just like, right. Whenever I see those ads, it always makes me uncomfortable because it's like you're paying someone to not go to shul on, like, I mean, literally they are going to shul, but they're not actually going to be able to like dab in, in the way that the community is. It's kind of just weird to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is, you know, as you're saying about rabbis, that appears in lots of places. I think, for instance, if you are like a professional cantor leading high holiday services and you are tasked with leading Musaf, which is sort of the premier event, you should try and have a really good private shahri. Like the morning, if you're going to be leading the central service, you should try and have a good moment in the morning service, right? That you you need to find your alone space. I think the thing about parenting is that it is extremely lacking in alone space. <laughs> so if I were to say, a lot of shuls offer, offer a hashkama minion, like an early morning option, specifically for tag teaming parents on the idea that somebody will come first thing in the morning, you know, to the seven o'clock service and have, and I don't even find that personally unappealing. It's just that 
the logistics of my household are such that I would feel like it was not fair to my spouse to leave them from 7 a.m. to 9.45 during sort of morning wake-up, dressing, rush, getting them out the door to go to shul. Like, th that's just not how we operate as a family with that that level of handoff and solo parenting of two kids at a time, one parent at a time. I know that a lot of families operate that way. We just tend not to. And so I can see the appeal of sort of saying, okay, here's where your alone time with God will be this weekend. Mm -hmm. And here's where mine will be. And I think that that's another thing that I could be more intentional about to say things like, I would like to go to Mincha, right? The afternoon service takes about 25 minutes. I can walk there and back. Like, and I would like that to be my thing on Shabbat is not an unreasonable thing to add to my schedule some of the time. And like, that can be my alone time with God this Shabbat. And when is your alone time with God going to be this Shabbat? Like we could, we could make a plan for that as a two parent household. And I don't think the designated early morning Hashkama Minyan option would work for us, but we could carve out a version of it. And so that's, I think, another space to think about. I love that idea. I think that's super smart. And I do think that like so many things in adulthood, it's really annoying. But if you want it to happen, you have to be intentional about it. Like you have to be like, okay, we're going to sit down and have a conversation. Just like we might have a conversation about like, who's going to do what bedtime um, this tonight or this week or whatever. Like who's going to, what time are you going to have to actually daven or actually participate or whatever it is that you want to do on Shabbat and what time am I going to have? Um, and I think that that is a great approach. And it, it feels also, Tamar, like one of the messages is, as with most things in parenting, this too shall pass. <laughs> like They won't be for forever. Totally. Absolutely true. I also just want to say, like, don't, I feel like in, in most conversations about parenting, there's this sense of like, this is the way and like, there's there's a way to make it work for your family. And I just want to say, like, I don't think that's true. Every... Every kid is different. Every family is different. And like, sometimes you hear people be like, oh, this this is great. Everybody should do this. And it's like, <laughs> LOL, that would not work in one trillion years for my family. So like, if you have a service that works great for your family or you have some other practice that works great, like, I just want to give you a big high five because it's hard to find the thing that works for you. And if you found it, great. And if you haven't found it yet, like, that's okay too, but... I do recognize that like my particular practice is not going to work for everyone. And I think like for some people, the like programming that a shul, that their shul provides is exactly what they want. My, my sister's kids like love the kid service at their shul. And so I'm not anti-kid service. I just, I'm anti-going to a kid service myself. <laughs> Tamara, I believe you have been quoted on this podcast as saying, I never again in my life want to sing Shabbat Shalom, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really, that's really where I am. <laughs> that's the step of my spiritual journey that I'm on is <laughs> I am over Shabbat Shalom, hey. Well, thank you guys so much. This was really fun and helpful. Good. I'm so glad. It's so, I think it is really important to have conversations about stuff like this because it feels 
like a an undiscussed piece of Jewish parenting. All right. Are we ready to go on to endorsements? Sure. Awesome. Mimi, do you want to go first and tell us what you have to recommend? Yes. I recently in a Facebook group was linked to an article about an album that's soon to be released, I think in February, which we're recording this end of January. It's a full-length album of Hasidic melodies sung by women. The album is called Kapelya, which according to the article in Yiddish means ensemble. You can find clips of it on Spotify. The artist's name is Raza, R-A-Z-A. It's a woman named Hannah Raskin. Anyway, it's, you know, all women singing songs from Hasidic communities, um, all sorts of different communities. And in the article, you learn a little bit about the history of where she found these melodies. In particular, I'm excited to share links to some of the YouTube videos of Hannah Raskin and this group of women that she gathered across, I think, in New York, maybe Philly, maybe Boston. I'm not sure exactly. Just really fun, beautiful, soulful music. I happen to love the sound of groups of women singing. Um, So I'm excited about that. And then I also want to tell you guys about a book I just finished that I really enjoyed called Yerba Buena. It's by Nina LaCour. I listened to it, which was a great experience if you're into that sort of thing. It's light, but in like a really delightful way, it touches on like such real issues. Like heroin use is touched on, not the experience of it, but the experience of being a family member of somebody who uses heroin, you know, growing up in families that are comprised of all different, just families that are blended in a lot of different ways, LGBTQ love. And my favorite part of the book was one of the characters becomes a bartender and you learn a lot about cocktails. You will want a drink when you read this book. (laughs) It's delightful, light, um, but yeah, I thought it had something, something really fun to say. So it's Yerba Buena by Nina LaCour. Cool. Totally adding that to my audio book list right now. I did get the recommendation from our mutual friend, Lizzie, who has pretty good book recommendations. Excellent. Yes. All right. So Hava, what do you have to endorse? So first of all, I want to thank Tamar for being the person who um, responded to my call most directly, actually, for help with finding something for a daily reflection practice. I did get a book that she Googled into existence for me (laughs) (laughs) called, I I mean, you know, all deference to the author who published it in 1992, um, called Growing Each Day by Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky, who is also, I believe, a psychiatrist. Um, He is basically each day choosing a passage either from Tanakh or from some kind of traditional works of the sages kind of thing, whether that's Talmud or a Midrash. So pulls a very short passage, writes two to three paragraphs per day on how that relates to uh, something that we could think about in terms of our personal practice, character, or outlook. It is not 1,000% my sensibility, because that would be impossible, but I am finding it useful. And my goal right now, I haven't totally figured out the 
consistent daily practice part, but my goal right now is to always read it and do some journaling about three times a week when the thing strikes me as something that I want to be writing about and reflecting on. So I've gotten started on that and I'm finding it helpful. So thank you for that, Tamar, and uh, recommendation to the wider audience. I also want to recommend a piece in the Jerusalem Post from Parshat Shemot. So it was published January 14th by Rabbi Moshe Tarragon called Orthodox Jews and Tikkun Olam. This is written in the form of a quasi Dvar Torah on the Parsha about Shemot and about Moshe's interaction with slavery and Egyptian society. And it's also partly a very inside the tent to an Orthodox audience meditation on why Orthodox Jews tend to be uncomfortable with the phrase tikkun olam, which is much more commonly used in more liberal denominations, and why social justice activism has kind of uh, gotten de-emphasized in Orthodox communal life and practice. I don't think there was anything super groundbreaking in it, but it felt like I was nodding all the way through. Like, yeah, this this captures something for me that I think is helpful. And it was a very speaking the language of the Orthodox community to an Orthodox audience about why this has happened and why it's a shame. And so I thought it was helpful and might be interesting both for people in the Orthodox community who think this is something they want to reflect on or people not in the Orthodox community who've found this trend a little bit confusing or maybe weren't aware of it but are interested in exploring it. So I believe it was also printed maybe even a couple days earlier in the New Jersey paper, The Jewish Link, but I'll link to the Jerusalem Post version in our show notes. Oh, that sounds great. I totally want to read that. And I'm so glad that my Googling worked out for you. I have not been this excited about my endorsements in a really long time, you guys. (laughs) I am... Okay, I have two. The first one is a podcast called the Hanukkah Erotica Book Club with Razel and Malia. And it is a, a podcast of two women who I happen to know reading. They started during Hanukkah. They were reading Hanukkah Erotica and discussing it. And like they also watched Hanukkah, um, one of the Hanukkah romance movies. And now it's more of a just general Jewish romance book club discussion. It is so fun. I mean, it's just a delight. I don't have that much to say about it other than like, love it, want it, want to listen to it every day. Like, it's just really fun. Wait, so is there a sufficient quantity of Hanukkah-themed erotica to power a whole podcast? (laughs) Well, it's not only Hanukkah. Now that Hanukkah is over, it's not limited to Hanukkah. Like the book that they... Did they have eight days worth? They did have eight days worth, I believe. We think it's a a miracle that it lasts eight days. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They just did a book called Hot Rabbi, which I I haven't listened to that episode yet, but I'm pumped about it because it sounds amazing. Yeah, um, it's so good. You should all listen to it. Okay, my second endorsement is a book that I just finished reading yesterday and I have been raving about it since I was on like page four. It is so, so good. It is called Search. And it I don't know who recommended it to me because I get my book recommendations from too many different places, but it is by a woman named Michelle Hunneven, H-U-N-E-V-E-N. And it is about... Um, being on a search committee for a new pastor at a Unitarian Universalist church. And this woman, the protagonist of the book, is a writer. She's 
on this committee. She's like kind of annoyed to be on it, kind of excited to be on it. She's like looking for who's going to be her buddy. She's like, there's like the strategy. There's the like petty politics. There's the like scandal. Like it is so fun to read. It's also one of those things where like having been on a search committee for a rabbi, I was like, it's so good. It kind of (laughs) hurts. I mean, it's Unitarian Universalist. I'm like, I don't really never knew anything about UU communities until reading this book. And it's like fascinating and a little weird to me, but there's so much about it that's like so deeply relatable that I just like absolutely love it. And I just want to like scream from the rooftops. Like everybody should go read this book. So good. So it's called Search. I just have not had this much fun reading a book in a really long time. And I had that thing where I had like 30 pages left and I was like, oh no, it's going to be over soon. Also, it is a book with recipes in it. So the protagonist is supposedly a food writer. And so in her like book that she's writing about this experience, she includes recipes. So there's a bunch of recipes in the book. Like it's just really like everything I like um, in one in one package. So Go out and read Search by Michelle Hunnevin. That sounds fantastic. As mm-hmm. my, I was not on the search committee, but my shul <laughs> did just hire a new rabbi this year. And I feel like some therapeutic read through is called for after any such process. Oh my gosh, seriously. <laughs> Anyone who's on a search committee needs to get like compensatory therapy afterwards. Um, <laughs> Uh, I am so glad that we had this conversation. It was so lovely, as always, talking to to both of you. But this particular night, I think I didn't know how much I needed to uh, see and speak with you all. So I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. And you, listeners, thank you so much for listening. Uh, and thank you to our editor, Jordan Daniel Mills, for editing the show. If you have a minute, it would be wonderful if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use. It would also be helpful if you have ideas about what you would like us to talk about in future episodes. We're always looking for ideas. You can email me, tamar.fox at gmail.com, and I would love to hear from you. Um, You can also leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, Jewish Public Media, or on our website, jpmedia.co. You can also donate to jpmedia.co, which is a great way to make sure that we can keep bringing you new episodes every month. Zahava, thank you so much. Thank you. Mimi, thank you. Thank you. This was great. Yeah. I will see you both next month. Mm